Our scripture reading is found in the book of Acts chapter 16 and we're going to commence our reading at the verse 16. It's Acts chapter 16 and commencing at the verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, And seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptised, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told us, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privily. Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them, and brought them out, and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison, and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them, and departed. We'll end our reading there at the end of that 16th chapter of Acts. Trusting God will add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inspired truth. For Christ's sake. Amen. Verses 30 and 31 of Acts chapter 16. 
30 and 31 of Acts chapter 16. And it says uh, at the end of verse 30 that the jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Some years ago, over in America, two men had a strange practice. They would get into a streetcar, and one of them would go right to the back of the streetcar, and the other one would go right to the very front of the streetcar. The one at the back, he would stand up as the streetcar was moving along, and he would shout out, Can anyone tell me how I can be saved? And then the man at the front, he got up and he preached. And he told the other man about his sin and how he could trust in Christ and repent of his sin and be saved and have everlasting life. And so as the streetcar was moving along, the man at the front was preaching. Not really to the man at the back, but he was preaching to the entire streetcar. Then when they came to a stop, they got out and they went to uh, the next car uh, in the chain of cars and they repeated the process. The man at the back shouted out, can anybody tell me how I can be saved? And the man at the front, he preached the gospel. I'm not saying I recommend that as a method of evangelism, uh, but uh, that is the way they felt they could get the gospel across. It was a rather contrived situation. And I thought about it as I thought about these words of the Philippian jailer. What he said was in no way contrived. He was anxious about his soul and very respectfully, falling down before Paul and Silas, he cried out, Sirs, sirs, what must I do to be saved. And Paul and Silas preached the gospel to him. They said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Now as we think about these words, the first thing that I want you to notice is this, that that man who made that request, an earnest, a deadly request to Paul and Silas, a very short time before, had not the slightest interest in such a question. He asked, now, sirs, what must I do to be saved? An hour earlier, or two hours earlier, he had no interest in being saved, in getting right with God. And that tells us that something had happened. And what had happened was, behind the scenes, two men were praying. Paul and Silas, you read of it in this passage, they prayed and they sang praises to God. Two men without any bitterness. Two men with love in their soul. This morning I mentioned the importance of having a loving attitude towards the unsaved, not being harsh and unfeeling. Nobody could ever, after Saul of Tarsus was converted, have accused him of being hard or harsh or unfeeling. 
He speaks in Philippians of those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says, I tell you now, even weeping, even weeping. He thought of enemies of the gospel, those whose God was their belly, as he put it. And he says, I tell you this, even weeping, with tears streaming down my cheeks, heartbroken. And Paul and Silas had been praying, pleading with God, not thinking about their wounds, not thinking about their incarceration in the inner prison, and not thinking about the harsh words and rough treatment that they had encountered at the hands of the jailer. They were weeping for this man, and they were weeping for their uh, fellow prisoners and pleading with God. So behind the scenes, there were men praying. And then uh, behind the scenes, words, I believe, had been spoken by Paul and Silas. It seems to me inconceivable that Paul was uh, thrown into the inner prison and Silas without those two men bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, with Paul, it was impossible for him to keep quiet about Christ. Uh, yesterday I was on a senior's outing with our church in Lurgan. It was my first experience of it, not because I wasn't old enough before, but it was my first experience. There was a man with us, retired prison officer, a man who recently lost part of his leg. He was sitting in a wheelchair and he met up around a little table where we were stopped with an unsaved man. And he was bearing witness to him. And he called me over to join in the witness to that man. And he told of his desire to see that man getting right with God and being saved. To me it seems that he couldn't keep quiet about Christ. He wanted to share the gospel with that man and with others. And the same, I am sure, is true of Paul. Paul and Silas were witnessing to the jailer, telling him about his need, telling him about Christ, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Probably Paul gave him a word of testimony and said how he was once antagonistic to Christ and had no time for him and how on the Damascus road the Lord met with him and the Lord saved him. So that's all going on behind the scenes. But there's something else that was going on behind the scenes. And that is this. God was at work. God was at work in answer to the prayers of Paul and Silas. God knew where his servants were. In his sovereign purposes, he had placed those two men in that prison so that they might bear witness, so that they might pray, and so that they might be on hand to stop the jailer from committing suicide and to tell the jailer how he could be saved from his sins and have peace with God and go to heaven and know the joy of sins forgiven. So God had placed them there. He was working all along. And then, of course, it was God who brought that mighty earthquake about. A strange earthquake. It shook the prison. And it loosed all the bands on the prisoners. It didn't kill anybody. It didn't demolish the prison. And then God did something else behind the scenes. God prevented 
the prisoners from trying to escape. Paul was able to say to the jailer, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. So, a wonderful thing is taking place. God is moving. God is causing things to happen in response to the witness and in response to the prayers of his people. May I say that that always takes place when sinners get saved. I'm not saying there's an earthquake every time, but I am saying that God is at work. Every time a man or woman or young person gets right with God, it is because God is at work. God is moving and God is blessing and God is determined to step into the situation. That's the wonderful thing about God. And when you're inside the centre of his will, you see exciting things taking place. You see God stretching out his hand, reaching down to a lost soul and drawing that sinner to himself. So I say to you that uh, even though uh, an hour before or two hours before, or if you go back a week, that jailer had no thought about God. He was a tough man, probably an ex-soldier, a veteran of the Roman army, placed in charge of that prison. Even though he had no thought about God a week before or a day before, God was moving and God was working. And God was going to step into that man's life. But that leads me to a second thought. That man, as we might put it this way, came within a hair's breadth of losing his soul and of plunging himself into hell eternally. Isn't that an awesome thought? But that man got so close to hell. And yet was saved. We read that when the earthquake took place, he awoke out of his sleep. It was at midnight. And there's darkness. Everything's shaking. An earthquake is a very disorientating experience. Uh, And we know that our our brother, the Reverend Wesley Graham, and his wife have passed uh, through an earthquake. They've experienced it. And it was a very frightening thing for him and his wife and for the people who are out there in Nepal. Very disorientating. And every time there's a tremor, afterwards, you don't know whether to run out of the house or stay in. You don't know if it's that, that tremor is the prelude to another great earthquake and the building collapsing around you. In fact, Mr. Graham told me, I think he was sitting in the airport and his, his wife moved to the chair and there was a little movement and it startled him because it was still in his mind fresh what had taken place in that earthquake. Now this man was awakened out of his sleep. Everything was moving. He was startled and he was in the darkness and he came to the conclusion that all his prisoners had escaped. He knew what that would mean for him. No no excuse would be made for the earthquake. You've allowed your prisoners to escape. You'll die an ignominious death. And he thought that suicide was better than an ignominious death. So he pulled out his sword and he was about to fall on his sword when a loud voice from the inner prison startled him. Do thyself no harm, for we are all 
here. He was within a hair's breadth of eternity. One step more. One step more. And that man was gone. And no hope. No trust in Jesus Christ. We were singing those words of John Newton. Determined to save. He watched o'er my path. When Satan's blind slave. I sported with death. That's what John Newton said. And John Newton did sport with death. He was an ungodly man. As we know a slave trader. Captain of the slave ship. And he himself became a prisoner. And he himself was very cruelly treated as a prisoner on an island. And he very nearly lost his life. And so uh, he could write of his own experience. When Satan's blind slave, he sported with death. And after he was saved, he sang the hymn that we'll close with. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. If you're a child of God, you perhaps have no idea how close you were some point in your life to hell itself. You perhaps are a brand plucked from the burning. And if you're unsaved, you have no idea how close you may be to hell at this moment in your life. And yet, may I say something rather strange to you? This man was within a hair's breadth of hell. But he was never, ever going to be in hell. Remember what I quoted from John Newton's hymn? Determined to save, he watched o'er my path. When Satan's blind slave, I sported with death. Ephesians 1 and verse 4 tells us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Even though we may come within a hair's breadth of going right over that precipice and dropping into hell itself, God reaches forth his hand with a determination. Here is one for whom the Saviour, my Son, has shed his blood. He will not he will not go over that precipice. He will not sink down into the caverns of the damned, as we call them. I will stop him. I will rein him in. I'll pull him back. Whatever is necessary to be done, I will do in order to save that man or that woman or that young person. And it's the sovereign grace of God, the sovereign power of God that reaches out to us when we're sporting with death, we're on, when we're on the verge of eternity, when we're almost gone, and pulls us back, and rescues us and saves us from our sins. Here is a man, and he had no thought of getting right with God a day before he got saved. He was within a hair's breadth of eternity and of eternal damnation, and yet God in his great mercy, pulled him back. Now, the next point I want to make is this. 
when that man was awakened to his sense of need, the most important thing in his mind and in his heart was getting right with God and being saved from his sins. Everything else faded into utter insignificance. He came, he, he was trembling, shaken, not just uh, by the earthquake, but shaken by a sense of the nearness of God, of the awesomeness of God. And just as Saul of Tarsus trembled on the Damascus road, so this man, who I have reckoned was a Roman veteran, an old soldier, who had raced into the battle and fought the enemy and come back with many scars. This man who had no fear when in the battle was terrified in the presence of God. He called for a light. The Bible says he sprang in. That suggests a tremendous panic in his heart. He fell down before Paul and Silas. He addressed them with respect. They were just prisoners. His prisoners. And he calls them sirs. And the word is sometimes translated, the word sir is translated lord. So he's saying lords or sirs. He, he's, he's looking up to them. He's looking up to them. He's lying on his face. And he's shaking. Shaking uncontrollably. He's afraid. The thing that is uppermost in his mind and on his heart is getting right with God. What he has heard from Paul and Silas previously has suddenly filled his whole mind and heart. And all he can think about is eternity and how he can be right with God eternally. How can I be saved? And in making that statement, he is actually saying, I'm willing to do anything that you tell me. Literally it means, what is it necessary for me to do in order to be saved? You tell me. He would have attempted to swim across the widest river, to climb the highest hill or mountain, if that had been the way of salvation. Anything you tell me. How much I may be humbled, I do not care. You can, you can press me down into the gutter as far as possible. You, you can humiliate me. You can tell me anything that's necessary. I will attempt it. What is it necessary for me to do in order for my soul to be saved? And that's what happens when God is moving in a man or woman's heart. Lesser things fade out of the picture. They disappear. When God moves in revival power, people forget about their work. They forget about making money. They forget about building grand houses or owning grand cars. They forget about everything. Sometimes people under conviction of sin appear to be on the verge of complete collapse mentally they seem to fall into a state of awful nervousness and the doctor may feel 
in certain cases that uh, they should uh, be, be uh, admitted uh, to an institution, a psychiatric uh, institution for treatment. Now I'm talking about extreme cases. But I, I will say, in general, when a person is under conviction of sin, under deep conviction, nothing else matters except getting right with God. You see, that person has got a glimpse of the future, has had a look out into eternity. That person sees hell gaping at his or her feet. And that person sees tantalizingly close the prospect of being in heaven. And isn't that an awesome thing? The prospect of heaven, tantalizingly close. And if I don't grasp that prospect, if I don't take it, then I may plunge into the depths of hell. I'm reminded of a story I read many years ago about a place up in Scotland where there were rare eggs that were laid by birds in little crags in the mountains. And the people, even though those eggs were protected, the people used to go to them and they would steal the eggs. They would lower a rope from uh, the top of the mountain and they, they would swing down in that rope uh, and they would swing across till they got to the little ledge and then they would seize the egg and then they would make their way up the rope again and uh, they would uh, have the prize that was worth a lot of money. And on one occasion, a man swung down on the rope and he swung the rope over to the ledge. He got onto the ledge and in picking up the egg, he lost a hold of the rope. And he knew that uh, that was going to be fatal. Nobody would find him there. Nobody would rescue him. He would perish before anybody discovered where he was. He also knew that the next time that rope swung back, because it had swung away from him, the next time that rope swung back, it would be closer than at any other time. So his best opportunity of being delivered from an awful death was to leap when that rope came over and get a grasp of it. And that's exactly what he did. If he had waited then all prospect would have been lost of being rescued. So when the rope came back close to him, the next time he jumped, he laid hold of the rope to have his life saved so that he might not perish in a most wretched and miserable fashion. All that was in that man's mind was that rope. There's my hope. When that rope comes back, it swung away from it. When it comes back, forget about that egg. Forget about money. That rope is my hope. That rope will bring about my deliverance. And that's what this man thought of in a more sublime sense. I have heaven tantalizingly set before me. I may plunge into hell and be lost eternally. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Tell me. So you see here, 
the most important thing, the thing of paramount, absolute importance to the jailer was to have his soul saved from sin. And can we not say that that is of the most vital importance to you and me? The Bible says, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing more important to you at this moment than being right with God. Knowing that your sins are forgiven. Knowing that Jesus Christ is your saviour. Sirs, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the next thing that I want you to see is that very clear directions were given to the Philippian jailer. He was told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Notice that the direction was not to self-effort, to good works, to church membership, to baptism, to sitting at the communion table, to trust in the minister, to trust in the church. The whole focus of the direction was on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll see that Paul and Silas gave Christ his full title. He's the Lord. You submit to him if you want to be saved. He's Jesus. And Jesus means saviour. And he's Christ. And Christ means anointed. He's the one that, that God has anointed and set apart. He's the only saviour. No one else can save but Jesus Christ. And you've got to put your trust in him. If I may take an illustration from the Old Testament. There was one place of safety in the time of Noah. And that was the ark. No other vessel was waterproof. And no other vessel could withstand the storm that God sent. A storm that rose, caused the waters to rise so high that they covered the whole earth. Even the highest mountains were covered to a depth of 15 cubits. That's about 25 feet. That's the highest mountain. So what must it have been like lower down? You go down into the depths, there's, there's nothing but water. We'd say miles of water. And everything that, that moved across the face of the earth perished. And there's one vessel that is secure. A vessel built according to God's specifications. And a vessel with one door and that door closed and sealed by God. It's the ark. The ark of safety. And there is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul and Silas said to the jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. They were pointing him to the only one who can save. The only one. Christ said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other. 
for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's quite clear. Only Christ can save. But you've got to put your trust in him. Believe on doesn't just mean believe about him. It's putting your trust in. That's the force of uh, the instruction that was given by Paul and Silas. Put your trust in him. And how do you put your trust in him? You come to him. You turn to him. You repent of your sin. You ask him to be your saviour. Those people of Noah's time might have admired the ark. Some of them might have laughed at it. But some of them might have admired it and said it looks a good strong vessel. If there ever should be a storm, that would be a good place to be. Because you've built it according to the specifications. You've been very thorough in every piece of work that you've put into that ark. I believe that's a sturdy vessel. I believe it would stand an almighty storm. You could admire it. And you can admire Christ. You can say, I believe he's the son of God. I believe he's virgin born. I believe his life was sinless. And I believe that he went about doing good, that he displayed his power and miracles, that he preached as no other preacher had ever preached before or since. I believe that he shed his blood on the cross, that he died. I believe he rose again. And I believe he's able to save. You're admiring him, aren't you? But admiration for Christ is not salvation. And Paul and Silas said, believe on, put your trust in him. Put your whole trust in him. Uh, Horatius Bonner said, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. You've got to lay your sins on Christ. Give yourself to Christ. Come to him. Turn from your sins and ask him to be your saviour. That's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads me to my final thought. And that is the consequence of trusting in Christ. Here's a man who has suddenly come under conviction of sin. Here's a man who suddenly has grasped the truth. What is going to take place? Well, it says, he was told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And it tells us he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptised, he and all his straightway. That man, he, he, he was transformed by what he heard. He believed and he obeyed. He acted on the instructions he was given. And the evidence is his being baptised and his family being baptised. They were saying, no longer am I going to worship the old heathen gods. From now on, from now on I'm Christ. I identify with Christ in baptism. My wife, my children identify with Christ in baptism. And then he showed himself. A changed man. Because salvation changes you. It transforms you. It changes your behaviour. If any man be in Christ. He is a new creature. He's different. That jailer had been unsympathetic. Throwing Paul and Silas into the inner prison. Perhaps cursing as he did so. Now. Very tenderly 
and lovingly he washes their stripes. I can see him doing that and weeping at the same time. Could I ever have been so cruel? After you had been beaten, could I have been so hard-hearted as to throw such godly people, such servants of God, into a prison, into a stinking prison, and make their feet fast in the stocks? Could I have cursed you when I should have blessed you? Could I have been so cruel and so unkind? And tenderly and gently and lovingly he washed their stripes. And then he set some food before them. The, the food of the prison wouldn't have been uh, very nice, to put it mildly. But now he sets the best of the food in his house before them. And uh, he welcomes them as honoured guests in his home. He's baptised and the Bible says he rejoiced believing in God with all his house. Not only has his behaviour changed but his whole attitude has changed. You can think of that man as probably an angry man before this time. He, he's, he's a jailer. He's dealing with crooks. He's dealing with hard men and vicious men. Men that would kill him if they got a chance. And he's twice as hard as they are. He's twice as tough as they are. That man's brow will be furrowed. There will be a scowl permanently on his face. But now you look at him and you say he's different. Something has happened. He's transformed. He has, he has been lightened in his countenance. Because he's enlightened in his soul. He's rejoicing. He's singing the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's honouring the servants of God. He's a new man. New in his attitude. New in his behaviour. He's a child of God. And where is he today? He's in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing what God can do? How God can step in. To a man or woman's life. Into a young person's life. Into a child's life. And save that person. From their sin. And if you're not saved. It's amazing. What God can do for you. You've got to experience it. For yourself. I can tell you about it. Every child of God here can tell you about it. But you need to experience that salvation. For yourself. You may be within a hair's breadth of hell. And God may be speaking to you. I say to you, if he's speaking to you, do not hesitate. Come, come now to the Saviour. The Bible invites us again and again to come. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Let's bow together in prayer. Our loving, gracious God, we ask thee to write thy word upon our hearts. Let us see the truth. Let us understand the truth. Let us grasp it. And grant, Lord, that any who know thee not as Saviour will come and call on thy name. And may thy people who are here have a concern 
for the souls of sinners, especially loved ones. May we be burdened to see them right with God and born again of the Spirit of God. Please bless us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.